0: And so this morning, if you have your Bible, I'd like for you to open them to a story that you are quite familiar with. Anyone know who wins the battle between David and Goliath? Yeah, you know who wins that. I know you know. And so um, what's there to preach on that, you know? (laughs) But I, I want you to pretend to approach the Scripture this morning as... Objective as you can, putting yourself in David's place and putting yourself in the nation of Israel's place, not knowing who is actually going to win. You are in the heat of this battle. You're about to watch it go down, and you don't know whether Goliath will win or whether David will win. Now, we have this advantage. We know the end of the story, but think about it just for a moment from their point of view. Who's going to win this? So I know this is a very familiar episode in the life of David, and I'm not going to teach you anything new about the passage. I understand that as well. But what I do hope to do is kind of rehearse some truths that we really do know, but we haven't really thought about in a while. I, Personally speaking, I know that in times of crisis, conflict, that Scripture can become very real to us. And this is one of those, to me, that has become real the older I get, and more involved in ministry I am than what it was earlier on. And I think to some degree, each and every one of us in here on some level can relate to David. He was a shepherd boy who was living on the backside of nowhere, no recognition at all. and it, God picks him out of that place and says, you're going to be my next king. But he is not thrust into royalty. He's not ascended to the throne. He is learning the ropes of what it means to be a servant to an ungodly king. Acts 13 gives us a little bit of insight into David. He's called a man after God's own heart. Now that did not always come to fruition in his life. And if I looked at my life and if I looked at your life we'd probably identify with David. We love the Lord. But there are days when somebody would say, you don't really love the Lord, do you? You're a cowboy fan, you can't. Well, you know. But I do think there was something deeply embedded in David's heart to so where he wanted to please the Lord, but sometimes it just didn't happen. And so we're going to read about a crisis that came into the life of Israel that David took upon himself. It was not his battle, yet he so identified with that battle that he said, I will stand up and I will face the giant. So he walked upon this scene and he's puzzled by it. There are two armies facing each other, perhaps one on this row and one on that row. And there, you know, to get that image, there's this valley between them and there's this one guy standing out there intimidating an entire army. And from a logical point of view, it really doesn't make sense if you think about it. Couldn't somebody gather them around and say, all right, on the count of three, we're all going to shove our spears at the guy. Hopefully one of us will hit him. I mean, you you, you think of it that way, but that's not what happened. This is startling for us because we tend to think and we tend to pray, Lord, shelter me from the battle. I don't want to fight anybody. But it was God who took David there to that battle. So it took place nearly 3,000 years ago, and it kind of serves for us as a, an encouragement for those of us who are in the midst of a spiritual battle. I'm going to ask you to go to the Lord with me in prayer, and we'll take a look at this passage and kind of work through it. Father, some of us may be facing giants in our lives. Some of us may be in a position where we don't really want to have a... Conflict. We don't want to have spiritual warfare, but yet you've called us to that very thing. So let us take ownership of the place and the time of these battles. Lord, I pray that if anyone here this morning doesn't understand this issue, that they're perhaps lost, then the greatest issue they have today is to be saved. And Lord, I know that sounds weird at a Bible college, but my wife is living proof that A lost person can wind up in a Bible college, and yet you call them to repentance. So I pray that this morning. your name I pray, amen. Let me give you a little bit of background before we start reading here. The national background, the Philistines had been there in the land of Canaan for a long time, and Israel has relatively new, they've been there 200 years, maybe 300. They're an up-and-coming nation, and they're growing powerful, and they're powerful enough to where Saul, as king, is making an impact upon the local area. And this nation is beginning to grow, and these Philistines are concerned about who's going to occupy the land. And so this problem was ever present before of the Israelites, is that they were given this property, but or this land, but there are Canaanites there. And the Philistines, by the way, are migrant people. They came there, just as Israel did, prior to Israel at the conquest with Joshua. And so they wanted to populate the same land even though they were on the coast. Been there since the time of Abraham. And this Hebrew nation is now coming into existence. And the real crisis here is who's going to occupy the land. The the, the crisis, the battle, really has nothing to do with David as much as it is based upon the promises that God would give this land to his people. That's the real issue here. And yet there they are, cowering down from taking their property, so to speak. Now I want to talk about the personal background of David. He is the arm bearer of King Saul. If you look at the timeline of when God called David and when God begins to use Saul greatly in battle, it almost is amazing how God called David to serve this king. And so David begins to see the political implications and the decisions Saul is making as he watches Saul administrate the kingdom Now, he's still tending his father's sheep, but he's getting a lesson in diplomacy and in military strategy. He is this gifted musician who would play the harp and actually sing to King Saul and hopefully relax the king as Saul was growing ever fearful of losing his own kingdom. Somehow, if you look at the timeline, if we had the background passages, I would show you this, but he knew God had taken the kingdom from him, But he didn't know when, where, or who it would be given to. And that brings us to number one, the dilemma. The dilemma. David goes to this camp. He sees Goliath taunting this entire army. In fact, what he sees is a conflict. Now, if you have your Bible open, we're going to read exactly in a moment what David saw. And I want to translate it into Marvin Jones English. The armies of the Philistines and the armies of the Israel are camped at Soko in the Valley of Elah. The valley is about a mile wide and probably about a mile long. Goliath would come near the camp of Israel morning and night. So let's pick up in verse 1, just keeping that in mind. The Philistines gathered their armies together to battle. They were gathered at Soko, belongs to Judah. They encamped between Soko and Ezra and Ephes And Saul and the men of Israel gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah, drew up in battle array against the Philistines. They were in marching order. They were ready to attack. Philistines stood on the mountain on the other side. Israel stood on the mountain on the one side with this valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span, roughly nine foot six inches tall. Now, there are scholars, and I'm not one of them think it was actually seven and a half foot tall, but if you're only five foot seven, two foot is pretty significant. If you're five, seven, and you're nine foot, four foot's pretty significant. Either way, Goliath is tall and big and mean. And notice how he is described. He is a champion. Champions have a reputation. They are known by that reputation. Goliath has won many battles this way, and that reputation is well known, so nobody is going to touch him. This champion has come out to engage this entire army. He had a bronze helmet on his head. I saw, in your um, room up there where you sell the T-shirts, I, I saw a gladiator. Was that a was that a gladiator? I saw. Are you known as the gladiators? A knight. Okay. Good, I was scared there, a gladiator. Okay, so the knight had this uh, helmet on, something like that. That's covering the entire helmet. His, uh, his helmet's are covering his entire head. He's wearing this bronze helmet. This is the Bronze Age. He's armed with a coat of mail. That coat weighs 150 pounds alone. It's a heavy coat. You're not going to penetrate that with spears. He had a bronze armor on his legs, bronze javelin between his shoulders. Imagine he's got this coat of mail. He's got what I would call hindcatcher's shin guards, all the way up from his mid thigh down to his foot. He's got the helmet. This guy's ready. But look at this he had bronze armor on his legs, a bronze javelin between his shoulders. He's got this spear. He has got modern technology from their point of view. This is the Bronze Age, and he is well adapted to it. Now, verse 7 is really interesting. The staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, roughly 18 to 25 pounds. So the spearhead alone would cause you to run in fear. A 25-pound spear coming at you from this guy who can handle the javelin is pretty impressive. I really like verse 7, though. Staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, 600 pounds, 20, you know, 600 shekels, 20 pounds. What is this guy, a shield bearer, went before him? Now, again, this is Marvin Jones' interpretation. This could be totally wrong. But I see this little shield bearer struggling with this heavy shield saying, we're going to win, you know, something like that. Uh, Again, it could be me. You didn't like that, did you? Okay, fine. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Listen to this. Why have you come out to line up for battle? Why are you wasting your time? Am I not a Philistine? You servants of Saul, choose a man for yourself. Let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then... You shall be our servants and serve us. This is really cut and dry. This is an ancient uh, method of war. When you have two opposing armies that are of equal length, you send out your best, and whoever wins the personal battle, they win the entire battle for the army. This is a well-known proposal. Israel knew it. Verse 10. I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man. Let's fight. Now, when Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed. They were overwhelmed. They were greatly afraid. They knew that they didn't have a champion who had the reputation, who had the experience of a Goliath. If they sent him down there, they would be enslaved in less than an hour. So they stood there frozen. Now David was the son of Ephraim of Bethlehem of Judah, whose name was Jesse, who had eight sons, and then Man was old and advanced in years in the days of Saul. Uh, I'm going to quit reading there, but if we were to read, you would find out that David's older brother is there. So David comes upon this place. He sees the conflict. He sees what's going on. This enemy is well ready for battle. He's got the reputation. Goliath is intimidating. And if you want to give some insight into this just to show you what happens, look at verse 16. This didn't happen in just one day. Verse 16 is very interesting. And the Philistines drew near and presented himself 40 days in the morning and in the evening. This is going on over six weeks now. Every morning he wakes them up and says, where's your man? I defy you. Send him down here. And then just when they get past that moment, they get through the day. He comes along at the end of the day and says, well, where's he at? Send me your man. Day and night, morning and evening for 40 days and you can't escape it. You hear it echo across the valley. We are cowards and they know it. And David sees all that. Twice a day. Very personal. Severe consequences. You ever felt like that? That you've got this conflict that you're going through and you get through it in the morning and just when you make it through the day before you lay your head down, it resurfaces to remind you that you can't handle it. What I've learned, and you're going to see this a little bit later in this passage, is that sometimes when we fight these battles and sometimes we have no choice, there are other people watching us that sometimes may be encouraged by the way you handle that battle. When I was at the Criswell College, Mark was a much better student than me. I couldn't pass English because of my native Texas language. It was pathetic. So I went to see the president to complain about the English teacher, who was a wonderful person. She loved me even though she truly didn't think I understood anything, and she was probably right to which the president totally didn't hear my complaint and said, Marvin, go take Greek. I'm thinking, what? I don't even understand the English. I'm not going to take Greek. So I took English for a second time. Same result. <laughs> I go to the president and I said, look, I don't know, can I do something else? And he said, yeah, you can take Greek. <laughs> fine I'll take Greek so I took Greek now I am not a Greek expert but somehow I understood it and before I know it I realized what gerunds are and prepositional phrases are because I understood it in Greek so the president sees me at the end of that semester and said how did Greek go and I said if we could just stop right there I can move on to Hebrew man (laughs) he said you got to go take English I almost cried (laughs) So I went and took English, and the professor looked at me. She was a wonderful lady, and I could tell she had doubts in her mind, and so did I. But I got through the class. Well, there was another student there who I knew, and he had watched me for three semesters now, cry all the way through every class in English I've ever had. And he said to me, he said, you've been an inspiration to me. He said, you just won't quit, and you're you're too dumb not to (laughs) I'm thinking, well, at least something good came out of this. Uh, He actually said that. You see, sometimes we don't realize the impact we're having on other people as we face our own dilemma, our own conflict. It could be internal. His older brother is there, and David has left the sheep, even though his father told him to. But look what happens in verse 37. actually, it's the wrong verse. Um, verse uh, 27, sorry. People, David asked, what happens to the man who kills Goliath? And the people answered him, this manner, so shall it be done for the man who kills him. He will get the king's daughter. Verse 28, Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against him. David, what are you doing here? I know what you're doing here. With whom have you left the few sheep that we have in the wilderness? You you realize you left your post and everything about our economy, our personal home is gone now because you're here? I know what you're doing, David. I know the pride and the insolence of your heart. You come down to watch us get slaughtered in this battle. That's why you're here. You ever face a false accusation in your ministry? And if you haven't, you will. I have a file that I keep. Because when I think I'm doing good, I pull out that file of anonymous letters and realize somebody doesn't agree with me. (laughs) You will have anonymous emails and letters and text. And somebody's going to make a false accusation about you, and it's hard not to engage in that battle because you're right. They misled you, they misrepresented you, and then they attacked you. I was about to be sued as president because the former president wrote a contract with faculty that I couldn't fulfill immediately. I did fulfill them, but I couldn't do it on the terms of which was specified by the contract. I didn't write that contract. I wouldn't have hired that person on the basis of that contract, but there they are. They work for me, and I went and told them ahead of time I cannot fulfill it until such and such date, which they agreed verbally, but it didn't stop the lawsuit coming. Now, I paid the contract, so it took away any conflict there, but I didn't write that contract, yet I'm the one that gets to fulfill the contract. It was real hard for me to keep my lips together and say, I didn't write this. Why are you suing me? Why didn't you sue the school? But why are you suing me? I didn't have that luxury. Someday God will write that, and I want to be standing close by when he does, but that's a different story. (laughs) It may be an internal battle, something that's going on in your heart to where you want to respond to something that you can't. Don't you know David wanted to scream out, the sheep are fine. My dad sent me down here. Your dad, you know what's going on. And you're struggling with this internal problem. You know what I've seen? I've seen good pastors leave the ministry prematurely because of depression or a temper or poor relationships. Pride. Maybe external. The insolence of your heart. This accusation keeps growing. It keeps growing and building, and his brother won't let it go, and it hurts. And there are people watching it. They're hearing these accusations, and he can't lose focus of what this true calling is for that day. He can't engage in this smaller battle, so externally he's got to keep his focus where it needs to be. I've got a quarter till, you know, five minutes till... 10 and we're going to 12 so I got time to do this (laughs) I'm going to skip this illustration for time's sake but I was 23 years old when I was asked to serve on a search committee and I volunteered my time if I've ever asked again they're going to pay me okay (laughs) it got ugly it got really bad but the goal was not to engage with one another and I didn't know it at 23 and that's exactly what I did now, as I said a while ago, I was right. The pastor we wanted to call has been there since I was 23 years old. But I fought the wrong battle. Number three, it may be a battle of eternal magnitude. David understood something. I think King Saul did too. I don't know whether the rest of the army did or not, but if they lost this battle, that nation's gone. If. If whoever fought Goliath lost, they become the slaves of the Philistines. There's no kingdom for David. There's no kingdom at all. And this one battle determines the destiny of Israel. Think of it that way. How you fight your battle today may determine the destiny of your ministry tomorrow or your family's future You see, Satan's rebellion permeates this world, and what he wants us to do is to get focused on something else besides that which is important. And he shifts our focus subtly to either his brother or something else and gets his mind going in different directions, and all of a sudden we've lost the real issue of insight here that this battle has eternal consequences. And that's what's going on. Now, let's look at the deliverance. I think part of the deliverance is to realize the power of God. We still don't know. Again, take a step back from what you do know. We don't know, if we're the army of Israel, who's going to win this battle. The Philistines think they know who's going to win it. They've got their champion out there. They know Goliath's going to win it. And you're in the army, and you have a lot of experience as a captain or private being out in the field, and you're looking at this little scrawny shepherd boy going to take on this giant and you're thinking, I wonder if I get a good master by the end of the day because there's no way he's going to win this. I mean, he's got the helmet on, he's got the, the armor coat, the, the mail coat of 150 pounds, he's got the shin guards, he's got a weaver's beam for a, a javelin and the spearhead is 20 pounds and then he's got this scrawny little guy holding a shield for him as if he needs to be there. And we're going to send this kid to fight that giant who's got that reputation. If you're Israel, that's got to be going through your mind. Maybe there's a backup plan. Look, when he kills David, maybe we can rush him in. So this deliverance issue here is kind of challenging for us. Now, again, you know the story. There's a couple of verses, though, I, I want to remind you of. We're going to look outside the text for a moment to a very interesting passage called 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9. And I'll just give you a glimpse of it. It talks about the eyes of the Lord running to and fro throughout the whole earth. It's a reference to God's omnipresence. And let me be quite honest with you. There were times when I should have reminded myself of God's omnipresence when I was in the midst of some conflict. That God is everywhere and he knows everything. He knows knows exactly where I am. His eyes run to and fro. Contrast that with Job chapter 1 verse 7 where the Lord asks Satan where you've been and Satan says I've been walking to and fro throughout the earth. Now here's the problem. We sometimes ascribe to Satan more power than than what he was created with. We think he is greater than us and he is but he is not greater than the person who created him, which is God himself. He is not omnipresent, as we sometimes think. If he wants to get back to Montana, he has to fly the plane. And I think he did coming out here, but that's a different issue. Satan is limited by time and space. Sometimes in our mind we give him too much credit as a created being. I realize... You cannot fight a giant in your own strength. David couldn't. You can't. I can't. And I realize that Satan is there pushing us toward the battle to defeat us. And he's going to use the giant to do it. I get that. And sometimes the battle seems to be overwhelming in and of itself. I was pastoring a church in Las Vegas when 9-11 hit. Prior to (laughs) 9-11... We had sold the property and we were going to relocate our church. Boy, did that come back around 20 years later as we relocate Montana Christian College, and we had had all set up. We had cell towers yeah, cell towers, which were new. in Las Vegas flat area. We were going to build these cell towers and bring in four to 5,000 dollars a month. When 9 11 hit that city shut down, every contract we had was over with. There was no income coming in. Half the city was laid off. We managed to get through the fall. We had a big payment coming up in December, and we had enough money to either make my salary or pay the property. I didn't want to be a good pastor. (laughs) But either I believed what I'd been preaching for so many years or I didn't. And that's really what it was coming down to. Either I believed God would provide or I didn't believe it. And so I t- pulled the committee together, and I told them, make the mortgage payment. A week later, men that I'd only know of by name started sending me checks, and they weren't great checks at all. I never had met Jimmy Draper or somebody who worked for him, and they had heard about the issue back in Nashville, and they sent me a check to get me through a week. Then another week goes by, and a church across town says, Marvin, we heard you made your mortgage payment and i said yes and i said my deacon's at our home praying each night that god and this is december that god would provide for us and they sent a week's worth of salary then the third week in december i got a five thousand dollar check from somebody back in texas who had heard what we had decided to i couldn't have raised that much money in any given time if i would have wanted to but God is faithful to bring us through battles. Mortgage payments, marriages, health problems, relationship issues, they're all under the grace of God. So he sees this battle from a divine perspective. Mark mentioned we pastored in the same association. She was 72 years old, and I was her pastor, and her name was Miss Ida, one of those old grand southern ladies and she was one of the pillars of the church and she was in the hospital and i was going to go visit her and everything was fine until my wife said about nine o'clock at night what are you going to say to her i don't know <laughs> what could i say to her i could say so why would you ask me that i was doing good i mean i thought about it she'd been a faithful servant longer than i had been old at that point and i kind of got depressed what am i going to say to miss ida and so I walk in there that morning at 6 o'clock and before her surgery at 7, and she looks at me and she said, you don't know what to say, do you? I said, no. And she said, young pastor, I'll tell you what you're going to do. She said, you're going to tell me that God is with me, and you're going to read my favorite psalm today, and you're going to pray and let me go to surgery with that prayer. And I said, you have a lot of faith in my prayer. And she said, no, I don't. (laughs) She really said that. She said, I have a lot of faith in our God. She said, look at it from my point of view. By the end of this surgery, I'm either going to be in heaven's door praying for you in this church, or I'm going to be back in your amen corner praying for you and you need it. (laughs) Divine perspective. See it how God sees it. It's just a battle. Divine faith. Look at verse 46. David is talking to him. The Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. That's really how he died, was he was decapitated. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, and all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Look at verse 47. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear. He's talking about the army. He will give you into our hands. Look at verse 48. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran toward him. Most of us would run away from the battle. But David engages it. It takes an overwhelming amount of faith to believe that you're so scrawny and he's so great that you can actually take him down because God has sent you there to do just that. Yeah, it took me three semesters to pass English. Your professor is not your enemy. He may feel like it, but he's not or she's not. And your spouse or your girlfriend, they're not your enemy. They're not opposed to you. They want you to succeed, and we get frustrated with them. And our sons and our daughters, they're not doing exactly how we raised them to do. and We get frustrated with them. Those are side issues. You know the real enemy here? It's the one Satan raises to stop God's work. That's the enemy. When we wage war with the firm belief that God will provide for us, then we'll see the last thing is divine deliverance. So he gets this rock and this sling, and he's pretty good with it, but my gosh, the helmet, the the coat, the shin guards, only one place he could possibly hit him, and that's right here where he's uncovered, and that's exactly what happened. And he falls down, and David runs and grabs his sword, cuts off his head. Oh, Goliath came at him with the armor of the world's system, with the world's strategy, with the world's technology, all of, it, all of it going for him. And he had won these type of battles since he was a kid, and this would be no different from Goliath's point of view. This is just another battle. Send him down. But I want you to hear this. A temporal battle does not need to negate an eternal calling. The calling here was to plant a nation to be a witness to those pagan uh, countries around them, that God would give them this promised land and that one giant would not stand in the way of God's calling. Don't let the battle steal the eternal rewards of God's blessings for you. Let God deliver the giant for you. God bless you this morning.